those are always the people who have inspired me, people who have, you know, worked 30 plus years in a job and they are totally committed to this chunk of landscape. And they're, you know, that's what they've chosen to kind of commit themselves to. And I've, I've always found great inspiration kind of in that, in that kind of dedication and um, perseverance, commitment to a place. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. And we want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. Now today's episode is about Jen Beck from Crater Lake National Park. She and her team are doing some groundbreaking work trying to conserve some rare species and to keep Crater Lake National Park as beautiful and pristine as it ever was. Now let's let her tell us about some of this cool work she does. I'm Jen Beck, the botanist at Crater Lake National Park, and I am responsible for managing vegetation here in the park, so anywhere from whitebark pine conservation, invasive vegetation management, rare plant management, uh, restoration of disturbed sites, anything to do with plants, trees, etc. Um, the park is pretty big, over 183,000 acres, and I'm fortunate to be the first full-time permanent botanist the park's had, and it started in, you know, the park was established in 1902, um, but I'm the first one I came in 2011, so I have quite a backlog and a lot of... Um, things yet to accomplish. Well, as Jen said, Crater Lake National Park is very large, and it exhibits many different kinds of vegetation communities. We have, we're mostly a, a you know, conifer forest, um, conifer-dominated forest. We have, our lowest elevation is about 3,900 feet down in the southwest corner, and that can have Douglas fir, sugar pine, um, climbing up to red fir um, on the southeast part of the park and the north east part too we have some ponderous pine dominated forests and then we you start going up in elevation and we have a lot of red fir um, western white pine lodgepole pine and mountain hemlock forests that kind of all you know i call it the upper mixed con where you have it's kind of a higher elevation but definitely a mixed forest and then at your very highest elevation we have our white bark pine we call them woodlands because they're more open and then we have very special locations like the you mentioned at the pumice desert and we have a sphagnum bog um, those are, you know, some very neat riparian areas and wetlands that are diverse and pretty amazing. We have a lot of those kinds of wet meadows on the west boundary, um, all the kind of near the main creeks that feed into the wild and scenic river. Now she mentioned something called the pumice desert. The pumice desert is this large expanse of basically just dirt, and you're driving through this really thick old-growth forest, and all of a sudden it's wide open, and it's basically just desert. So during the cataclysmic eruption of Mount Mazama, which we think is around 7,700 years ago, um, I think before the, you know, the eruptions, that was a, a, a meadow. It was this glacially kind of carved meadow that was, you know, very diverse. And it was completely filled in with the kind of ejecta from the eruption. So a lot of ash and pumice and materials. So they think it's about 200 feet thick 
um, some of the deposits in places. So it was established as a research natural area um, specifically to study the, um, the primary succession of a very kind of barren, harsh environment. Crater Lake National Park is at a high altitude, which makes it more susceptible to climate change. Yeah, our average is 523 inches of snow annually, and we received 192 inches this past water year. Um, yeah, so it's only 38% of average. But what's interesting is that we received um, about 91% of our total precipitation for the year, so a lot more of our precipitation arrived as rain versus snow. And so that translates into a very different place here. I mean, we have traditionally we have snow forests, and now we're getting more of the rain forest. So we have more open ground, longer growing seasons, um, and longer fire season. Uh, typically, we don't have um, snow free from park headquarters until early July, and this year it was May 9th, I believe, is when headquarters uh, lost all its snow. So that is a that's a huge difference. It's a lot more drying, it's a lot more time for weeds especially to, you know, complete life cycles. So this is a lot of change. But with this change, are invasive species an issue? Yes, they definitely are, and they're becoming more so, especially as we get um, less snow, longer growing seasons, um, things changing a lot here, and more disturbance. We have a lot of road construction, um, bigger fires, uh, just, you know, more visitation, a lot of disturbed areas. Um, it, it's definitely a, a problem, and it's funny because I think 10 years ago, if you had asked that question here, people would probably say, well, not really, but it's, things have changed a lot just within the past decade. But what exactly has brought on this influx? Well, I think climate change has a definite part in it, just with having longer growing seasons, and we've had a lot of fires since in the last 10 years, um, a lot more fires in the park, which is good, but then the weeds often follow the, the fires. Um, even though they restore forest health, it is a disturbance and promotes conditions conducive to weed spread. It sounds a bit counterintuitive, but fires can actually bring weeds into the habitat. Yeah, I would say the fires, um, they, they you know, open up the, the mineral soil, and so they, they facilitate invasion. Um, and we try our best to mitigate that by having weed washes for all incoming fire crews, uh, by asking people to check their boots and their packs and their um, gear just to make sure they're not bringing in mud or hitchhikers. A lot of seeds, you know, you can just walk through a meadow and suddenly you look at your boots and you're just covered in seeds. So that's right there, a way of spreading seeds in. So fires are a natural part of the ecosystem of Crater Lake National Park, but that's also changing. It's been very um, easy here to put out fires. In the 2014 fire season, we had an incredible amount of lightning. We had, oh gosh, over 40 lightning started fires that season, and it was just you know fire after fire after fire. And um, and then in the 2015 fire season, we had the largest fire in recorded history for the park, the National Creek Complex. Um, at over um, 15,000 acres. And before this summer, our largest fire was, I believe, 2,600 acres. So this is a substantial increase for us. Mm. And it got so big because um, we had those days where we just couldn't put the fire out. Like we had crews in there, they were trying to you know, build direct fire line and contain it, and they had to pull back because the fire just went. 
This is one of the implications of climate change is they're expecting a lot more of these larger fires or a higher frequency of smaller fires. So now we're going to transition into the work that Jen's doing on conserving white bark pine. White bark pine is, uh, yeah, it's all five needle pines, um, high elevation five needle pines particularly, but I mean, the sugar pine and the western whites, they aren't necessarily high elevation, but they're also subject to being um, impacted by white pine blister rust. Unfortunately, we're, most of our efforts are on white bark pine, which is a candidate species for listing under the Endangered Species Act. Jen's now going to talk to us about white pine blister rust. It gets a bit technical, but I promise the payoff is great. It's a really cool story. Uh, white pine blister rust is a disease caused by the invasive pathogen Cronarchum rubicola, um, which was accidentally introduced to Western North America in 1910. Um, it was on a, an infected uh, shipment of seedlings going to a nursery in, um, in British Columbia. And since that introduction point in 1910, it's pretty much spread, with some exceptions throughout the range of blister of a sorry of white white bark pine, as far as species that are potentially on the endangered species list, it has a really giant distribution because it's all the way from um, up to British Columbia and down to um, Southern California and then over into the Rockies and the Great Basin um, on high peaks as well. So um, like in uh, Nevada and Oregon. So it just has this incredibly large range. So the fact that throughout its range, it's being threatened not only by blister rust, but by mountain pine beetle and climate change, fire suppression, those kinds of things. It's very troubling. And um, Cronarchum rubicola, it's a, it has five spore stages, and um, it needs an alternate host, often a currant or a gooseberry. Um, so it needs these two plants, the white bark pine and or any five needle pine and the, the, the alternate host to kind of complete its life cycle. And so it often, um, the spore stage that infects the pine, it needs kind of cool, moist conditions, often the, the fall storms and the fog that kind of come up and settle in the, the mountains. Um, those are perfect for the, 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 that for spore stage to the basidiospores to go and they enter the stomata on the needles. And then they, that's the infection point. They get into the, the pine that way. And then from there, they produce another spore stage called, um, they make these acia that release acia spores, and that's, those actually make the orange blisters that gave the disease its name, because um, it makes these orange, you know, festering blisters, infections, that, that then um, they canker branches of the tree, and they eventually can make their way to the bowl, the main trunk of the tree, and then girdle it, essentially, so it just kills, slowly strangles the tree of its life. It's considered uh, progressive and fatal, the disease is, and there is, a, there is resistance out there, like natural genetic resistance against blister rust and blister rust infection, um, and it may be more of a um, kind of a spectrum of tolerance, like how well can a tree live in the presence of blister rust and how well can it tolerate being infected and how long can it kind of persist mm. in spite of this infection. And some trees are really well able to fight it off and others you know, have no chance and they succumb. So they found individuals of the species that could fight off this disease. Now there is a way that they can help this process along. So the way that they test for resistance is that we, um, 
we go out in the field and we look for trees that don't appear to have blister us. They appear to be d disease free, and that's called phenotypically rust resistant because you know they don't appear to have any rust. So we um, we collect cones from those trees, and you know the tree has a symbiotic relationship with the Clark's nutcracker, which is this co-evolved mutualistic relationship where the pine is called a stone pine, so it doesn't. You know, like typically most wind-dispersed pines, they have these sclerenchyma tissues in their cone scales that will dry out and kind of pull the scales apart, and then the seeds come out and are dispersed on the wind. Well, the white bark pine doesn't have that. It's a stone pine. It remains closed at maturity, and it requires um, animal assistance to open and release um, the cone and get the seeds out. And typically that comes in the form of the Clark's nutcracker, which you know, has this great bill and is very persistent and can go in there and peck away and get the cones out or get, sorry, get the, the seeds out from the cone. And then they, they plant the seeds in caches of, you know, seeds to make little seed caches that then they, they go back to in the spring um, and early summer to kind of sustain themselves throughout the long uh, cold winter and sustain their, their offspring. And they have this great spatial memory. So when they plant the caches, they kind of can you know figure out remember where they are so that they can go back to them but of course some are forgotten and those are the ones that then germinate and create new white bark pine clumps and clusters and stands eventually so without the nutcracker um, these trees wouldn't be planted so that's a very unique relationship as far as conifers go especially um, it's very kind of a beautiful relationship I love this story. I love when you see different species that have co-evolved to help each other get along through any kind of change. And it's really cool that Jen and her team can use this relationship to actually bolster the population of this tree that's disappearing. Yeah, and white bark pine, its whole growth form is kind of, it's, it's you know, very in phase with the bird. Like it's its cones are all at the tips of the canopy, the, so that if you're a nutcracker in flight, you look down and you can see the the cones there, um, and they're you know just a very open canopy. So they're kind of they've evolved with each other to kind of you know benefit each other and and help each other. So it's a neat, very neat relationship. Yeah. I think one that a lot of people once they hear that story, it kind of resonates within them. And and plus, whiteberg pine is a it's a wilderness species. It's at the top of our highest peaks. Um, our highest elevations, the places where you come to a national park and there's, that's where you want to go. You know, you want to get away from everybody. You want to get up on a high peak and look around and kind of, you know, just kind of be filled with the landscape. And it's often Whiteberg Pine is right there with you. As we said earlier, being a high elevation park, and in particular this species is a high elevation species, climate change is an issue. It is a concern, and they've done some studies where they've modeled out, you know, projected suitable climate and habitat um, for the species, and it, you know, it, the distribution just sh shrinks dramatically, um, and especially somewhere like here, where we were a, a park, a mountain park that's lost the top of its mountain, you know, Mount Mazama erupted and collapsed, and so we don't have any more upslope to go to, so we're, they're, they're capped out, they're, they've got no more higher elevation, no more uphill to migrate to. Maybe further um, north latitudes, they've done some studies up in Canada with um, assisted migration and you know, seeing if, if they could grow seedlings where they weren't previously occupied. So climate change and the white pine blister rust are major threats to these species. But there's another one. 
And with climate change, another factor um, really uh, causing the decline of whitebark pine is the mountain pine beetle, which is a native insect, and it's um, very adapted to pine forests in western North America. But due to warming winters, milder winters, um, the, the pine beetle has been able to expand up into these higher elevations where, you know, you know, historically there is precedence of it going and impacting high elevation stands and forests, but I don't think to the degree which, what, which we've seen lately. And it's because of these milder winters and warmer temperatures um, that have allowed the pine beetles to kind of complete their life cycle, perhaps in a, in a complete season, maybe in some places even more than one life cycle in a growing season. So they've been able to be a lot more damaging and cause a lot more mortality than um, historically maybe what happened. And that's the, our leading cause of mortality in whitebark pine is the beetle. It's now surpassed blister rust. So this species has a lot of things threatening its population. It's got new threats, it's got old threats with an increased severity. But here's the cool part. Here's what Jen and her team at Crater Lake National Park and other agencies across the Pacific Northwest, here's what they're doing to fix this problem. For whitebark pine, we, um, we go out and we collect cones. Well, we have to cage the cones first. We have to put cages around the cones early in the growing season. Um, to protect them from predation, because if we don't put cages around the cones, the, the nutcrackers will get the cones and the seeds before we can get to them. So we go out and we cage the cones, and then in the fall we take the cones off, the cages off, collect the cones, harvest them, and send them to the Darina Genetic Resource Center, which is a Forest Service facility in Cottage Grove, Oregon. And then they extract the seeds, grow out the seedlings for two years, and then at that point they inoculate them with blister rust. And then they follow those infected seedlings for a period of five years, and at the end, they're given a grade, kind of like grades in school, so A, B, C, D, and F. A being the most resistant and F being the most susceptible. So we get an idea of what trees are naturally resistant to blister rust and maybe which trees are more susceptible. So any tree that we have in the park that is deemed resistant through this process, we consider you know very, very valuable. So we go out and we put up um, verbenone packets. So the mountain pine beetle is a social insect, so it requires this mass attack strategy where it once it finds a suitable host, it puts out a pheromone that says, hey, you know, like, open for business. Like, come on. And all of its friends or, you know, associates come and colonize the tree. And they, they burrow in and they lay their eggs in um, galleries. And the mass attack nature of this whole thing girdles the tree, basically. It cuts off its, its, um, its food and water supply. And then when the tree is fully colonized, the beetle sends out another signal, which is like, hey, no vacancy. You know, this is fully occupied, go elsewhere. So people have figured out the chemical signature of this no vacancy pheromone, and they've manufactured it in a lab, and it's called verbenone. So we can put out these packets, these no vacancy packets, kind of tricking the beetles into thinking that this tree is, is occupied, don't, don't come in here, basically, go elsewhere. So on our resistant trees, we go out and we put these, these packets of verbenone up, this bark beetle repellent, each spring to hopefully trick the beetles into not attacking these trees. And then the, um, the, we continue to collect the cones from these trees, and Darina grows out seedlings from these resistant trees. And so then we can plant seedlings from the resistant trees for restoration and to try to restore areas. We focus on areas, our high-priority areas are obviously those that have suffered high mortality and have little natural regeneration of their own. So that's, those are two things we do, is put out the mountain pine beetle repellent and put out the, um, try to get the seedlings back out onto the landscape. 
This is an amazing example of scientists noticing a trend, seeing a problem, using ingenious ways to fix that problem and then implementing it into the field, and it actually working. But of course, not everyone agrees with these practices. Um, well, we have another restoration planting scheduled for fall of 2016, so that's very exciting. We have over 400 seedlings that are currently at Arena growing you know, to their three-year-old size. And um, usually when we plant, um, we it's not like a grid pattern or, you know, we're not, you know, trying to make this very artificial looking thing. It's very natural. And um, previous research has shown that, you know, the seedlings really need some kind of ameliorating site factor. So we tend to plant them kind of by woody debris, which retains moisture, maybe provides some shading, some wind protection um, behind a rock, behind a stump, something that's going to kind of help protect them. Um, but it's very much like what is already existing out there, what can we work with? And we just try to minimize our disturbance to the greatest degree possible. We just dig a tiny hole, put the seedling in, put the dirt back the way it is. And these seedlings aren't very big. They're only three years old. So it's not a giant disturbance, but there has been controversy over whether or not we as managers or even as a society should be planting trees, A, in national parks, and B, especially in wilderness areas. So there are people who feel very strongly that even though blister rust is a human-introduced, a human-caused you know, epidemic, basically, we introduced it, it's not native, and it's decimating whitebark pine, um, there are people who feel like we don't have a responsibility to restore in wilderness because that is a trammeling. The act of restoration is a trammeling on the wilderness, not necessarily the introduction of the disease. Um, so it's a, been a very philosophical and controversial issue. The you know should we what what should we be restoring in wilderness? And I of course feel as though the trammeling is the non-native pathogen um, and the decimation of a very signature wilderness species. I feel like whatever trampling may occur because we are gently tiptoeing trying to replace the seedlings that, you know, to try to make a forest where, you know, they're now dead trees, um, maybe less worse than just not having white bark pine at all in our wilderness. Um, yeah, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't either. I also, especially because we, we do restoration in wilderness, we restore disturbed campgrounds. We control weeds. So there is action. We also allow a lot of cattle grazing, not in parks or, you know, in our park, but in other areas. Yeah, a lot of cattle grazing is allowed in wilderness. So it's, it's a very tricky issue. We put out fires in wilderness. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are allowed, but then why not, um, you know, the very thoughtful, careful introduction of perhaps um, seedlings, whitebark pine seedlings that have some genetic resistance to blister rust. So that's the story of her amazing project at Crater Lake. But now we're going to transition into what got her into this field and what motivates her to move into the future with projects like this. I had a plant taxonomy course um, at Humboldt State, and we, the first day of the lab, we had a, an excursion where we went out behind campus into this creek called Jolly Giant Creek, and we were looking at ferns. And we were, you know, looking at the different kinds of ferns and different species and why they were different. And I was learning all these vocabulary words, you know, and, um, and it was the first time I had ever really noticed the difference between one species of fern versus another. I think one of my professor called it the green blur, and that suddenly came into focus, and I really started seeing the differences, and I was just blown away. It's like my whole world broke apart into millions of pieces where I could see the detail and the intricacies of this species versus 
you know, why this species was different and, you know, the hairs on this frond versus the, the type of spore on this, you know, fern. And it was just the diversity and the, the detail. And it was, it was fascinating, just fascinating to me, just all these beauty in the natural world and seeing it, you know, finally grasping it um, within myself. I was hooked. And I couldn't turn back after that. And I was fortunate enough to get a job working for the National Park Service for Redwood National Park two days after I graduated from college, which is a dream for any botany student. And <laughs> for any student. <laughs> for anyone, exactly. <laughs> and doing field work um, where you're outside hiking around, you know, studying vegetation communities, it was a dream come true. I just, I loved it. I would go home at night after work and you know, continue to look through the microscope and look at the differences and, and try to figure out what species of grass this was or whatever. You know, just people I've worked with who have, um, you know, they're not famous, their books, their names aren't in books, they haven't, you know, maybe haven't even made a scientific paper or you know, written one or whatever, not in journals or... But there are people who are tirelessly out there, you know, without any recognition, just doing the right thing because they are so passionate about a particular place. And um, those are always the people who have inspired me, people who have, you know, worked 30 plus years in a job and they are totally committed to this chunk of landscape. And they're, you know, that's what they've chosen to kind of commit themselves to. And I've, I've always found great inspiration kind of in that, in that kind of dedication and um, perseverance, commitment to a place. I love hiking with my kids. I love sharing outdoors with my kids, and I think that is just something that um, I really look forward to doing more of. They, they're just getting to the age, you know, they're five and seven, um, where they can hike longer. And we went on our first backpacking trip this past summer. And it was just, it's just a magical thing for me is, is watching them kind of light up and learn about the natural world and feel comfortable in it. That's, a, that's something that I, I'm, I feel passionate about is, is getting kids outside and into, into nature and feeling like they have the tools to... Um, to just feel confident out there and, and respect it and learn about it and carry on kind of what's been done before in the past. You nailed it when you said hope. I think there are so many things out there that can get us down and can discourage us and make us feel helpless. And like the issue is way bigger than anything we could do. But then when you realize our collective power, and I really do feel that humans, the good is more, you know, is stronger than um, the harm we do. And if we choose to do the right thing, I feel like the, the momentum and the energy behind that is just infinitely powerful. And I think what keeps me going is the hope that we will kind of harness all of our love for the outdoors and for our planet and try to do the right thing and try to find that balance, that sustainable balance and tilt that way. Um, and really kind of, I know we have, are at the threshold of so much right now and uh, with climate change um, being such a, a giant issue for all of us and how are we going to walk forward together in a sustainable and positive way and I hope that we can find that and I think that in this work 
you know, I see the hope, the the restoration, the planting resistant seedlings of white bark pine, the, you know, trying to restore areas that were trampled. I feel like we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to get help and, you know, write the grants, get the people on board, get the classrooms interested in what we're doing, the people, you know, kind of trying to galvanize the support for all this and really go forward um, with that hope and that good intention at the forefront of what we do. Special thanks to Jen Beck and everyone else from Crater Lake National Park. It's an amazing and beautiful park, and I highly recommend you check it out. Also, thank you to the National Park Service and the Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy. Thanks for listening.